0: Life doesn't stop because we decide to come into a building and worship God in a particular place or in a particular way. And there's something that feels strange right now about trying to be here and worshiping when a big part of me wants to be on a plane to North Carolina to be with Grizz and Kristen right now. But What we do here is vital. We are needed where we are. And the beauty of having a God who is Lord of the universe is that we can invite him to do powerful, powerful things even if we are not present. So Holy Spirit, I want to ask this morning that as we are not able to be there for Chris and Kristen that you would be God. That in you they would feel all of us love them dearly as we extend our prayer to them Lord as we invite you to comfort them to heal Kristen to knit bone back together to repair her body to give wisdom to the doctors who will help her get better Lord God we invite you to, to work the miraculous and the mundane and in beautiful unity Lord that your kingdom would be glorified in everything including this love you, God. ask that you please bless these words that that would be shared today, that we together would be drawn closer to you. We lift this all up to you in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name's Taylor. Uh, My my wife and I have been going to Pullman Foursquare for, I guess, over a little bit of a year now. Uh, And William, our son, hasn't been around quite that long, uh, but he's been here for, for a good long while himself. Uh, And I have have the pleasure of of continuing our series today as as we are unpacking the Apostles' Creed. We're calling this series Believe, and and we're going through the Apostles' Creed as a way of of clarifying what do we, as Christians, believe. We want to get on the same page with this before we do something that I am very, very excited for, which is begin to do a very in-depth unpacking of basically the entirety of Scripture. That's what we have to look forward to. As a church, and I want to thank again, pastors Jamie and Heidi, for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this team that we have going here. And and I also want to thank, especially Pastor Jamie and Emma, for for believing in the Lord this morning that He would give you what you needed to help us worship. We were all blessed by that. I know this wasn't an easy day for either of you to do that. So thank you. We're we're blessed to have you with us. And I feel particularly blessed to get to be speaking in this series because I. I love this series that we're going through, this series called Believe, because I think it's almost impossible to get right. I feel like what we're doing with this series is, is profoundly unattainable. And, and to get what I'm getting at here, look at what we've been trying to cover. We gave Pastor Jamie, he took one message to unpack, or try to unpack as best he could, the entirety of the truth that God is Father. But he's not just Father. Father. He is God the Father Almighty, and he's not just God the Father Almighty, he is God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Yeah, we can cover that in about a half hour. You know, that sounds pretty doable. No, it doesn't. It's ridiculous. But then we had him do it again. Just one message to address all that comes from the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to us as a man and walked among us, also stands as Lord of the universe we could spend our lives trying to unpack these truths and we're trying to do it in these tiny little snippets. And I love this because I think accepting the impossibility of what we are trying to do here and then still trying to do it defines the Christian life. This represents, what we're trying to do here represents just one of so many essential tensions that come with following Jesus. So many things that seem impossible to have them coincide. What am I talking about here? An example. One, God is fundamentally beyond anything we could ever hope to totally understand. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. He is transcendent over everything. And yet, two, he has done so much to make himself known that we would have an intimate and personal and life-changing relationship with him. Look at the provision of scripture. Look at the ministry of Jesus. Look at the work of the Holy Spirit. God does so much to make himself known. What are we supposed to do with this? That God on the one hand is so far above us we could never hope to know all of him and yet he has clearly done so much to express his desire that we would know him. And I bring this question to God, Lord, what am I supposed to do with the fact that you so clearly want me to know you, and yet you're so far beyond anything I can understand? And I feel like the response I tend to get in prayer is sort of God with this wry smile saying, yeah, it's pretty impossible, but it's kind of fun to keep trying. I I love trying to wrestle with these tensions, because it reminds me that we don't worship a small God. If I could comprehend everything that God was in this tiny little mass of gray matter that I call a brain, I don't think I would want to worship that God. It's beautiful that there are these fundamental tensions, these seeming impossibilities that define our relationship with our Lord. And I think that following Jesus requires us to pursue increased comfortability with the impossible. Which makes me even more excited to talk about today's particular message. Because the stanza of the Apostles' Creed on which I'm focusing this morning is this. And this is speaking about Jesus. I get the line, Who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, we can cover this in about a half hour. This sounds pretty straightforward. If this doesn't require increased comfortability with the impossible, I don't know what does this doctrine that jesus was born of mary outside the confines of typical biology should seem strange to us it certainly seems strange to a big chunk of the world my atheist and agnostic friends who i regularly have conversations with about things they think are weird with scripture stuff they don't understand about god they have given up on this premise it's too far out there they don't even ask about it anymore it's like okay there's this whole virgin birth thing I don't get it. I don't know what to make of that. Let's talk about something I could ever hope to understand. I'm I'm grateful that they keep talking to me, that they somehow managed to get past this hurdle of something that seems so fundamentally strange to them. But it's weird to a big chunk of the world. More so, on a slightly more positive note, it provides an interesting opportunity. This idea that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, this idea of the virgin birth, there is a bridge in this idea between Christianity and other faiths. For example, some of our friends who are Muslims find this idea very convincing. and It's an opportunity for us to potentially build a bridge with that population. Be it weird or be it a cool opportunity, this idea of the virgin birth has incredible potential. It should mean a lot to us. Yet, to American Protestant Christians today, I think this doctrine bears little, if any, weight on our daily life with Jesus. Now, I don't want to sell us short. We acknowledge this as a miracle, especially around Christmas. We acknowledge this as a miracle. It's something miraculous that God did. We, we attest the truth of this, but it doesn't shape the way that we interact with Jesus daily. And my friends, this should not be This belief should daily shape our relationship with God. It should daily call us to become more comfortable with the impossible and to wrestle with the implications of the fact that our God, at his very core, is miraculous, is one who performs miracles. There's two things, I think, that call us to this shift in perspective. The first one is the Creed, the focus of our series. We're about four lines in to this statement of of principal Christian belief, this magnum opus of orthodoxy. And this, this far in, we already have to confront the fact that God is miraculous. And I am absolutely certain that the writers of the Creed put this stanza where it is on purpose. Before we get to anything, About Jesus' death and resurrection. Before we get to anything about how the church is supposed to exist, how we are supposed to live for Jesus in our current day, which are extremely important things to consider, we are called to address the fact that God is miraculous. Now, the Creed is not a checklist. You don't start at the top and say, okay, I believe that, now on to the next part, now I believe that. You know, it's, If you don't work through the thing in order, that's okay. We're going to get to asking big questions and how we deal with those in a little while here. But I think we should pay attention to the fact that the writers of the Creed decided to put the fact that God is fundamentally miraculous this early on in this fundamental statement of belief. And the Creed, it gets this from the second and much more important source that calls us to confront God's miraculous nature. And that's the Bible. Now remember, Pastor Jamie talked about this the first message of this series. The Creed is not the Bible, it merely condenses the truth of Scripture into a manageable statement of faith. That is the function of the Creed. And in so doing, in this condensing of biblical truth, the Creed highlights the fact that God is miraculous. And this should not come as a surprise. If you've read the pages of Scripture, you are familiar with the fact that God is miraculous. But if you haven't, or we're just happening to feel forgetful today, a brief primer, a very brief primer, on just some of the miraculous accounts of what God does throughout the pages of Scripture. Starting off in the Old Testament, from Exodus 14, we have the parting of the Red Sea so that Israel can escape Egypt. In 1 Kings 17, we have God's response to Elijah's prayer where he raises a widow's son from the dead. In Daniel 3, we have the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fires of a furnace in Babylon. Take your pick. I could keep going for the rest of the time that we have here if my goal was just to demonstrate, yes. God is miraculous. And that's just the Old Testament. Scripture abounds with examples of God's miraculous character. From the New Testament, Jesus, just Jesus, stills storms, heals the blind, causes the physically disabled to walk, raises the dead, casts out demons, walks on water, and feeds 5,000 people with less than what a lot of us could eat for dinner. The pages of Scripture abound with examples of God's miraculous character. We know, looking at Scripture, that God performs miracles. The creed recognizes this and affirms it as biblical truth. Yet again, I do not think we spend enough time reflecting on what this means for our daily relationship with God. Because we think a lot on good things, how Jesus would have us live, relate, speak, love, vote, teach, worship, parent, the list could keep going, but we don't spend enough time thinking on how he would have us reflect his miraculous nature to this world. And this poses a really big problem that we need to confront, because in this negligence, we are disobeying scripture. Jesus told us in John 14 that we would perform even greater deeds than he did through the power of the Holy Spirit that he would give to us. 1 John 2 tells us that anyone who claims to live in God must live as Jesus did, and it doesn't give us a pass on the miraculous stuff. It doesn't say that we could just skip out on Jesus' miraculous efforts to advance the kingdom of God through healing, casting out demonic forces, and other supernatural means. That's what Jesus did through his miracles. He came into the world and recognizing that there is no place for sickness and death in the kingdom of God. So he healed and he raised the dead. There is no place for evil in the kingdom of God. So he cast out demons. Through his miracles, he advanced kingdom of god and we are called by scripture to live as jesus did and with this in mind i want to propose two changes that we can make to better align our walk with god to his miraculous nature and the first of these is i want to invite us to seek the gifts of the spirit and i mean all of them i i mean everything from from praying for healing to praying for the gift of administration, and everything in between. There are multiple different lists of gifts throughout the New Testament. All of them are gifts of the Spirit. All of them provide the opportunity for us to exercise the character of God. And my hope is that we would seek all of them as the Lord provides. I think we get too hung up on seeking our gift. I don't necessarily have a problem with, with some of the things that are out there, uh, especially online where you can f- like take a quiz and it'll tell you, you know, this is your spiritual gift. You should be seeking this from the Lord. I think that's a good way to understand a part of your relationship with God. I just think God might have slightly bigger plans than what an internet quiz reveals to us with what he wants to do with our lives. I think we need to liberate God from the equivalent of a BuzzFeed personality test. I think he might want to do something bigger. Now, I want to clarify why and how we would seek these gifts. Because I understand this is a fraught topic for many. This is not something I want to come to lightly. We seek these gifts not to revel in our own power. It's not our power. It is a gift from God. Any gift that he would provide, any gift of the Spirit, is a bit of God. It is more of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're seeking. We are seeking to live out more of who God is in this world, and as we do that, to develop a deeper understanding of who God is. Our relationship with God grows deeper by expressing more and more of these gifts, and we better walk as Jesus in this world. Scripture calls us to live as Jesus did. If we are to do that, we have to confront the fact that Jesus performed miracles. The second thing that I want to call us to, the second shift that I hope we can practice in light of what we're learning today is I hope that we would start praying big specific prayers. I hope that we would start praying big specific prayers. The best example I have of what I mean by this comes out of Joshua 10. In one instance, uh, Joshua, is, he and the Israelites are in a military conflict with another people and Joshua prays that the sun would stand still in the sky. And it does. Where does he get this idea from? This should seem weird to us. Where do you get the idea that you can ask God, make the sun stand still in the sky, and then look up and be like, yeah, okay, cool, that happened. Where do you get this idea? I think you get it from an accurate understanding of God's miraculous You don't pray this kind of prayer unless you have an accurate understanding of the miraculous nature of God. If God stands as Lord of the universe, if he holds all power, then nothing is impossible for him. We proclaim this in our songs. We read this in scripture, and yet we pray tiny, vague prayers. I pray tiny, vague prayers prayers. I ask God that at some time he would give me the opportunity to talk with someone about him and that he would make that opportunity clear. That's not a bad prayer. God wants us sharing the truth of his scripture. But if our God is the God of the universe, the God who can make the sun stand still in the sky, the God for whom nothing is impossible, why am I not being a little bit bolder? why am I not being a lot bolder? Why am I not praying? And I won't use names right now because that could get weird, but that this specific friend would come to know this specific thing about God and the next time that I see them, I would talk to them about that. And then the next time I see them, I step out in faith and I try to have that conversation because I believe that my God is all-powerful and I believe that he wants people to come into his kingdom and if he would use me to do that, then I should count myself blessed. Why don't I pray those kind of big prayers? Why is it not my knee-jerk reaction to pray that God would knit back together Kristen's clavicle, that her doctors would be in awe of the miraculous power of our Lord? I'm saying this about myself right now and I'm inviting you to consider it as this is something that you need to be thinking through. I want to encourage us in light of who God really is to start praying big, specific prayers. I think that would please him. But here's the thing. This is really, really hard. I don't pray these kinds of prayers a lot of the time because I'm scared. I have had a grand total of one instance in my life in which I finally worked up the gumption to pray for healing for a friend of mine, and it happened. It blew my mind. And I've never done it since. Because I'm scared. What happens if I pray, especially for somebody who's not a believer, this is, I, I guess I have prayed for, for believers, but for, for non-believers, what happens if I pray for healing and the Lord doesn't bring it in that moment? I look pretty ridiculous. I may have just made God look bad if such a thing were possible. It, it I get scared of these things. And no amount of words or even examples from scripture are going to consistently compel us to overcome our doubts about God's desire, or let's get real, even his ability to work miraculously on a regular basis. Our doubts persist. They linger. They are not so easy for us to push aside. Some of us experience this on a regular basis. We have friends who are active in various dramatic gifts of the Spirit, and we're just not there. And we might want to get those doubts out of the way, but we don't know how to deal with them. But we want to keep fellowshipping with our friends so we end up just kind of shoving them to the side and hoping we'll figure it out someday. But I think doubt is okay. I think it's better than okay. I actually think doubt is necessary i think doubt is necessary to a proper and vibrant relationship with god and i didn't invent this idea getting it from a guy by the name of timothy keller he's a pastor in new york city in his book the reason for god which i cannot recommend highly enough he says that a faith that hasn't considered serious doubts that hasn't asked big questions is like a body without any antibodies in it It is vulnerable to all kinds of attack, all kinds of of outside intrusion. It's incredibly vulnerable, and it's prone to just kind of fall apart. And he says it's vulnerable in two specific ways. First, it is vulnerable to the tough but reasonable questions of our friends. When our friends come or our family members come and they ask us, I don't understand this thing about God. What's going on here? How can you believe this? And our response is, I don't know. I just believe. One, that doesn't recognize how much God has revealed his character to us. Two, we are pretty vulnerable in that moment. Because now all of a sudden, if we haven't wrestled with serious questions about our faith before, we're left holding the bag with that. We are in serious danger because all of a sudden this thing that we've never really seriously investigated has been called to question. And second, and this hits too close to home today, it's vulnerable to personal calamity. If my faith is this thing where I just believe in God and I believe that he has good things for me, and then I'm in a head-on collision, or nine of my ribs are broken, My jaw is shattered, and they have to take out my spleen. And I think, God, you're supposed to watch out for me. You're supposed to protect me. You're supposed to keep me safe. If I've never seriously asked questions about why I follow Jesus, if I've never seriously interrogated the doubts I have about who God is and what that means for my life, I cannot imagine a faith that is more vulnerable than seriously interrogating our doubt is necessary to a vibrant and sustained faith in jesus and i think scripture backs up this way of thinking possibly the most famous example of doubt in all of scripture does anybody have an idea of what i might bring up here thomas the apostle thomas exactly what do we call him doubting Thomas. And we get this from this one instance in his life. He messed up one time. Maybe he didn't even mess up. We're going to get to that. One time and he's stuck with this nickname for maybe the rest of history. We'll see. We'll meet him in the new heaven and the new earth and see what people are calling him, I guess. Uh so what happens with this? Well, Jesus after he resurrects from the dead, we're going to get to that later in this series. That's another massive thing we're going to cover in a half hour. After he resurrects, he appears to his disciples. First he appears to to Mary Magdalene, but then he appears to his disciples. And Thomas is not with them. The disciples, they tell Thomas, they find him and say, Jesus is alive. And Thomas, and, and this quote right here has defined him for the rest of time. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Keep in mind, this is just days after Jesus was crucified and died. Let's not be ambiguous about that. He was dead. Then he wasn't. A week later, Jesus appears to his disciples again. Thomas is there this time, and Jesus invites him to investigate his wounds, what's left of them anyway. He says, put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. And Then he says to Thomas, Stop doubting and believe. Thomas proclaims his his belief. he, He announces Jesus as Lord. And Jesus replies, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, typically, we interpret this as an instance of a condemnation. I don't know if you've had that experience, but when I hear this passage taught, it's it's this really intense call that we need to believe. Thomas is somebody we're not supposed to be like. But I don't think that represents Jesus' attitude in this moment. Not all of it, anyway. In this story, Jesus does call Thomas to believe. He explicitly declares that a certain group of particularly faithful people are blessed. Yet what Jesus doesn't do is he does not condemn Thomas in his doubt. He doesn't say, because you doubted, go away from me. You can't be a part of this fellowship anymore. He provides Thomas the proof that he needed to once again call Jesus Lord. short, as Jesus calls people to deeper faith, he meets them in the midst of their doubt. this is one of those fundamental tensions that comes from following Jesus. He calls us to have faith in him and his incredible power to work the miraculous, to do incredible things that we could never think were possible and yet at the same time he is so gracious to appear to the one disciple who wasn't there and show him what he needed to see so that he could continue to follow Jesus as Lord. As Jesus calls people to deeper faith, he meets them in the midst of their doubt. And I think, as we close, I want to suggest that we need to do the same for others, and we need to let Jesus do this for us, especially when we are wrestling with what it means that our God is a miraculous God. I hope you'll take the suggestions I've made seriously. I hope that you will seek the gifts of the Spirit. I hope that you will pray big, specific prayers. I I want us holding these things in in intention today. And yet, at the same time, if you are not at that place, I hope you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Lord is so glad that you are in fellowship with him. If you are in a place where you're wrestling with what it means that God is miraculous, where you are struggling as I do to overcome fear that God wants to work miracles in this world, know that our God is with you in that moment. You are not far from Him. His love is still very much with you, and His heart goes out to you. His invitation to you in this time is twofold. And as we enter into a moment of silence here, which I love that we've been doing this, the end of our messages, and we're gonna do it again. I'm gonna I'm going to propose a thought and then just invite you to silently reflect with the Lord for a bit. I think his invitation, what I want to call you to reflect on, is twofold. First, what miraculous thing would God want you to reflect on today? How does God want you to show his miraculous character to this world? I want to invite you to think on that. And at the same time, I want to invite you to think What doubts does he want you to bring before him? He is not afraid of your doubts. And if he's not afraid, I don't think you should be either. I also want to invite us to not be afraid of the doubts of our loved ones, our parents, our siblings, our friends, our co-workers, our children. God is not afraid of their doubts. So how is God wanting you to show his miraculous nature to this world? And what doubts does he want you to bring before him? I invite you to just think on these things with the Lord for a little while. go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to close with a song today. And are we doing, I believe? Is that? No? Okay. As we do this, I just want to invite you to keep thinking on this. If you're in a place right now where you seem to keep reflecting on these things, it's nobody needs to give you permission, but here, have it anyway. <laughs> Feel free to to not necessarily sing along in this moment, but to continue reflecting on what the Lord's doing. If you are in a place where you want to proclaim the glory of our God, I invite you to do that as well. Or a blend of both, because there's room for multiple expressions of worship to our God in this space. I want to ask that you please stand with me as we sing this song.